Welcome to Bible and Bourbon with Pastor Ben. Today we'll be covering the third chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, verses 1 through 12, the introduction of John the Baptist. Our prayer request this week comes from Kelly. After a long series of doctor's appointments and a long journey overall, her husband has been diagnosed with diabetes, and she's asking for our prayers. Kelly, I could tell from your email that this is a difficult time for your family, but diabetes is quite manageable, and as always, we will be praying with you. Today, I am drinking an Up Manhattan with Maker's Mark. I always feel quite fancy drinking an Up cocktail. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judah, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, and make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all over Judah, and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the chaff up with unquenching fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. John the Baptist was clearly an interesting man. This is the first we hear of him in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Luke gives us a little more detail about John's birth to Mary's cousin, but the author of the Gospel of Matthew doesn't tell us that story at all. In fact, it starts right here with, in those days. And it's also important to know how much time has passed since our last reading. And no, not time since the last podcast episode was published, but the actual time that passed in the gospel. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus was still a young boy. But here, during the time of John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus is a man. We know they were born at roughly the same time. So if John is an adult preaching in the wilderness, then we know that Jesus must be an adult as well. The Gospel of Luke gives us one story that comes in between Jesus' birth and his baptism, but the rest of the Gospels tell us nothing. Matthew tells us the story of Jesus as a young child, 
with his birth and with the Magi, with his fleeing to and then back from Egypt. But then there's this gap, a gap that summed up with the line, in those days. It doesn't really do much to tell us about the time that has passed or what Jesus has done. But Matthew also doesn't give us much of an introduction into John the Baptist. But that's probably because Matthew assumes that his readers already know who John the Baptist is. During the time of Jesus, John the Baptist was somewhat of a celebrity. His preaching was widely known, as was his execution. The historian we mentioned last week, Josephus, of the Antiquities of the Jews, speaks very fondly of John the Baptist and talks about the many people who came to listen to his preaching. Josephus probably mentioned this because John the Baptist was well-liked by the Jewish people, but he probably also mentioned it because John the Baptist was beheaded by one of the Herods, and Josephus didn't like the Herods very much either. Additionally, John the Baptist finds his way into all four Gospels, and I think this speaks to the importance that John the Baptist had with our Gospel narrative. There are very few things other than the crucifixion and the resurrection that are present in all four Gospels, and John the Baptist is one of them. I've mentioned that each one of our Gospels has different reasons for the author choosing to tell certain stories or parts of Jesus' life while leaving out others. And the fact that John the Baptist was included in each one speaks to his importance. But yet, as Christians, today, we barely remember him at all. We think of him as simply a man who baptizes something we can figure out just from his name, John the Baptist. But there are a few more important details about John's ministry, things that we can get from these verses. First, he preaches in the wilderness. He does not preach in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of everything. The religious authorities and the governmental authorities lived there. In no small part, it was the center of oppression for the Jewish people. The people in the countryside had more freedom, both religiously and politically, than the people in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, anyone who disagreed with the religious expression of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were silenced by the Roman government who wished to maintain the status quo or the order of the day. By preaching in the countryside, in the wilderness, he could preach a message of repentance even if it was different than that that the Pharisees or the Sadducees preached. If he were in the city, they would send him to his execution, which ultimately they did anyways. Next, we get this quote from Isaiah, but it's really a paraphrasing of Isaiah 40, verse 3. The quote we have from Matthew says, A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, and make straight paths for him. While the original quote from Isaiah says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Some people have pointed out the differences in these two quotes, but frankly, I think the differences are often overstated. 
it could easily be a difference in translation. Matthew was written in Greek, and this quote from Isaiah could have been taken from either the Greek or the Hebrew translation. And we know that in the translation process, especially back then, words were changed. It wasn't quite as easy to translate a document back then as it is today. I can speak into my phone and have a perfect translation 95% of the time, but they couldn't do that back then. They had to find someone with a knowledge of both languages and have them transcribe it back and forth to the best of their ability. So yes, the translation of the prophet Isaiah doesn't exactly match up, but it does keep its prophet's original meaning. Just because Matthew changed a few words doesn't mean that Isaiah wasn't prophesying about the coming of John the Baptist. And that prophecy is important because it shows us a bit of what's coming. Why is John in the wilderness behaving so odd? Because he is a bit odd. People don't normally make clothes out of camel's hair. It would be quite itchy. And while he might have a leather belt tied around his waist, that doesn't make up for the fact that he eats locusts and honey. You can think of some wild men that you might see around your city living in tents and imagine them being a lot like John the Baptist. Which makes you wonder why. Why did people come to hear him preach when we walk past many people who look a lot like him? And the reason is because, frankly, that was fairly normal for them. Holy men often dressed and acted like John the Baptist. It's what we might call an aesthetic lifestyle. John seemed to, to reject the earthly and instead focus on holy pursuits. But he wasn't the only one who did this. There was a group of Jews back then who lived out in the wilderness and who were seen as holy men. In fact, some people believe that John belonged to this group. They were called the Essenes. Now, you might know the Essenes because they're the group that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, that ancient collection of certain books of the Bible that were found out by the Dead Sea. This group lived out in the wilderness and practiced a very basic lifestyle and taught the coming of a Messiah. They also practiced ritual baptism. Now, you can see why many people believe that John was part of this group, because he did many of those same things. However, he did do it a bit differently from what we can see. First, he was much more popular than anyone else in the Essene group if he was part of them, which means he probably would have been seen as a champion of the group, but we don't have any documentation that that's the case. If he was the most popular one around, it seems like they would have tried to connect themselves with him, but they didn't. Also, his teaching isn't exactly in line with what they taught. Particularly, they were looking for a Messiah, but they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah, while John did. So, from what we can know, John probably did his ministry all on his own, and he was preaching before Jesus. He was out in the wilderness baptizing people before Jesus came, speaking of one greater to come. Now, I know I spoke particularly about how John the Baptist stayed in the countryside 
to avoid the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But we see in this next paragraph that they came to him. The fact that these people left their nice, comfortable homes in Jerusalem to travel out to the wilderness meant that John the Baptist was causing a bit of a stir. Now, we have no idea if they said anything to him when they arrived, or if they said nothing at all, but we do know what John said. He said that wonderful statement, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John's angry, and you can tell from this statement that there's a lot to it. Particularly, he's mad in some way at these Sadducees and Pharisees for what they've done. All Jews, back then and today, are children of Abraham. They come from Abraham's line. The Pharisees saw this connection as an important marker for their very being. Uh, Even Jews today still hold that as an important aspect of their heritage. But John is saying to them, you can't rely on what your forefathers have done. Just because you are children of Abraham doesn't mean that you are good. You can't rely on the benefits of what people have done before you. You need to do something for yourself. If you can't personally produce fruit, then the axe is at the root of the tree. Which means... The axe hasn't swung yet, but the axe is coming. This does two things. One, it reminds those early Christians with Jewish heritage that even though they are children of Abraham, just like these Pharisees and Sadducees, they cannot rely on that alone. They need to do something themselves. Also, it shows that John was looking for someone greater to come. John wasn't going to swing the axe. The axe would be swung by someone else, by Christ. John was the forerunner, but he wasn't the main event. You can think of it in understandable terms that John was the opening act for Jesus, uh, with Jesus, of course, being the headliner. And John dismissing these religious authorities also clarifies that this someone greater to come isn't going to keep with the old order. Something new was going to happen. Then John goes in to clarify what his baptism means. He says that he baptized with water for repentance, but someone who is greater than him will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, scholars love to debate exactly what John meant with this statement and what John's baptism was for. What does water baptism for repentance actually mean? As I mentioned earlier, there were other Jewish groups at this time who practiced baptism for ritual cleanliness, either baptizing someone every day or on a regular schedule to make sure that someone was religiously clean. Even today in the Middle East, 
there is a group of Gnostics who follow the teachings of John the Baptist. Uh, They practice a religion similar to Christianity or Judaism, but it's not really either one. They see John the Baptist and his teaching as their guiding star. Uh, They're a very small group and very secretive. They don't allow converts or for people to marry outside their faith, so we know very little about them. But what we do know is that they practice baptism every single time they meet, uh, regularly. They do it over and over again. And from what we can tell, uh, their baptism is probably fairly similar to the way that John saw his baptism. Uh, Not something you would do once and for all, but something that needed to be done over and over again. And this would have been keeping in line with the other Jewish practices of baptism back then. But he says that Christ is coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And I think it's interesting that he says fire, because we don't really baptize with fire today. But also, a fire is the very thing that John threatens the Pharisees with, that they will be thrown into fire if they don't repent. But yet he says, one is coming who will baptize with fire. I don't think John was referring to actual fire. We don't dunk people in fire water today, but instead he may have been talking about the fire of damnation. If you are baptized with the fire of damnation, you can't be threatened with it. For if the Holy Spirit raises you up from those baptismal waters out of the fire of damnation, then you are pulled into something greater. And this is where we get our basic idea of baptism from. As Christians, the majority of us are baptized either once as an infant or as an adult. Uh, We aren't baptized every week. That singular baptism can sustain us. This is the difference between the baptism of Christ and the baptism of John the Baptist. And John knew this. He knew that someone was coming greater than him, that his time was coming to an end. And then John ends his discussion with this passage here about a winnowing fork, which is a very difficult word for me to pronounce, but basically it's just a pitchfork used to gather wheat and separate the edible parts from the inedible parts. Now, I'm not a farmer myself, but I do know that this separating the shaft from the wheat is important. If you didn't do this, then you wouldn't be able to eat the parts of the grain that are edible. It's an important step, but it's one that separates two parts of one whole. And this is a metaphor that John is using to describe Christ, separating the good from the part without merit. And all of this happens before Jesus ever even begins his ministry. But that's the point. Jesus is still living out in Galilee. Jesus is probably still a carpenter, working and helping his stepfather Joseph. But we don't really know anything about his life at this point. Jesus is an unknown figure in the far-off town of Nazareth. And even though Jesus is the central character of the Gospels, we haven't really seen him as an active character yet. As a child, he was merely present when the Magi came to visit him. 
He didn't decide to go to Egypt or to Galilee. Other people made those decisions for him, Mary, Joseph, the angels. And here, in this passage, John is seen speaking about what will happen, even though Jesus isn't present at all. But all of that's going to change next week. We're finally going to start with Jesus' ministry and to see how Jesus fulfills all of the expectations and prophecies that have been laid out for him about his life. And we're going to start with the baptism. As always, thank you for joining me today. If you have any questions over the materials or any prayer request, please email me at bibleperiodbourbon at gmail.com. Additionally, if you do drink, please do so responsibly. While it is true that Jesus drank wine, an occasional glass is different than an addiction. If you need help, please seek it. If you need help but don't know where to look, reach out to me and I'll be happy to guide you. Blessings, everyone.